It is quite common for me to hear someone articulate a sentiment like this. There is no God because even if I were God, I would have created a better world. Now, I've never heard anyone say this, let's say, standing in the Canadian Rockies and looking at those lakes that when my kids heard that we were going up there for our family vacation last summer, they said, those lakes look like they're filled with Gatorade because they're just so bright. And the backdrop of the glaciers and the forests and these pristine, beautiful lakes I've never heard anybody say, there is no God because if I were a God, I could have created a better world. And I'd love to take them to Yosemite Valley and say, could you really have thought of this? You know, this is, it's more common. Our skeptical thoughts and feelings about the existence of a loving creator God. Because when we struggle or wrestle or see the suffering and pain and loss of others, we wonder, was all of this necessary? Could this have been avoided? But the more we learn even about the natural world, the more we discover how little we know and how much we can't control. So poor Lil is gonna get to the, go to the doctors again, again this week and have even more tests. And you would think, after all these tests, if they know so much, couldn't they fix these things? Poor Carmen's in the hospital, and I'm sure they're doing all sorts of tests on her. And we begin to wonder, well, exactly how much do we know, and exactly how much can we control? There's, a, there's something called the Dunning-Kruger effect. And now chat GPT is sort of a really handy new little artificial intelligence, I'm not really quite sure how intelligent it really is, but this is its explanation of the Dunning-Kruger effect. The Dunning-Kruger effect is a cognitive bias in which people who lack knowledge or skills in a particular area overestimate their own abilities and performance, while underestimating the abilities and performance of others who are more competent. I think that is pervasive among human beings. And you begin to recognize this because actually once you get a little bit of competence in one area and get a little bit of understanding about how things work, you'll regularly have the experience of someone else rolling in and saying, you don't know anything, I know everything. And if you ask just a question or two, it becomes immediately obvious they don't know much. In fact, they might not even know much about what you know a lot about. If I'd ask you all to draw a helicopter, you would probably say, oh, I could draw a helicopter. But once you took pen to paper and started trying to make something, most of you would just start to think, well, could I see a picture of one a minute? Because it's actually not that easy. You can recognize one, but you don't really know all that you feel you seem to know. You can do the same thing with sitting you down and saying, tell me about the neighborhood you grew up in. You say, oh yeah, there was my house, and they had this, and that house, and that. And then if I took a photograph of it, I asked you a bunch of questions. Based on looking at the photograph, I bet that all of us would fail. What color was the house next door? Well, when? 
Well, and if I began to ask details, because that's how memory works. It's just sort of, I think I know these things. You know, we've all had that experience when you decided you didn't need to study for a test because you knew it all, then you sat down for the test only to realize, ooh, I don't know as much as I thought I knew. And this should be obvious to us because have you been able to arrange the details and outcomes of your life according to your desires? If that were the case, I wouldn't hear quite so much complaint as I do. How satisfied are you with your ability to manage the behavior of those closest to you? Just start there. Because again, most of what I hear from people is, well, my husband or my wife or my kids or my parents or my boss or my coworkers. You can't even manage yourself, much less those around you. Now you can talk all you want about just about anything, but people don't really care about stuff until you do something. Matthew 16, 21. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day raised to life. Now Jesus has been laying out righteousness in the Sermon on the Mount. Last week we looked at the parables of Jesus. And Jesus says this, and suddenly things get serious. So Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this will never happen to you. Oh, Peter, do you know so much? Do you know what will and won't happen to Jesus? Do you know what's going to happen tomorrow or next week or next year? Peter has in his own little mind a whole narrative about the way the future's going to unfold. And it's probably along the lines of how many other revolutions that happened in Judea and Galilee at that time in the world. And historians can look at the Bar Kokhba Rebellion, the Rebellion of Judas the Galilean, on and on and on, the Maccabean Rebellion against the Greeks a century, a century before. Peter had a little script in his head, and he thought he knew in detail exactly what should happen to achieve exactly what he thought things should be. And we've all got that script, and we're confident about it. But usually our script is extremely short-lived, and we know almost zero consequences of what we're going to do. We are dominated by imagined expedience. Then Jesus turns, so First Peter takes him aside because he doesn't want to embarrass Jesus in front of the rest of the disciples. Now Jesus turns and will embarrass Peter in front of the rest of the disciples. Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns, the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Fix my little thing here. I didn't know my 
little clicker would break in the middle of my sermon. There we go. Ouch! Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. Jesus is basically telling Peter, you're tempting me, Peter. I know very well the script you have in your mind. I was tempted by that script in the wilderness by the devil. Everyone around me wants me to do a particular thing, and now you are stepping up. You, in many ways, is the leader of this little crew, and you want me to follow it too. Then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Now it's really interesting that the particular thing that Peter needs to deny is that little script in his head. That's specifically what Jesus is addressing. Anyone who wants to be my disciple must take that little set of expectations, that little script that we all have running, and lay it aside and pick up Jesus. He doesn't say agenda. He says cross, which had an impact to them very different from us, where we have ornamental crosses all around us must take up their cross and follow me. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it. In other words, that little agenda that Peter has, if you keep following that agenda, you will lose your life. That is what Jesus is saying. But whoever loses their life for me, because Jesus says, this agenda that I have for you, that you look at as losing your life, will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world? He's reading Peter's mind. Because Peter is thinking, with Jesus, I'm going to gain the whole world. And we've seen versions of this in the gospel before. Remember when the mother of James and John said to Jesus, let my son sit at your right and left hand. That was her version of gaining the world. Peter's version of gaining the world was probably... Jesus would, you know, congregate an army or use spiritual powers and plagues like had been done against the Pharaoh of Egypt. And Jesus would sit on a throne in Jerusalem and Peter would be his chief of staff. It's probably Peter's imagination. What good will it be, Peter, for you to be the chief of staff of someone who lives and reigns from Jerusalem, but loses his soul. Now, we've got people in this room that have worked with politicians, and some of you know, working in that building, that people lose their soul working in that building. They do. People lose their soul working in the pulpit. People lose their soul one of the most reliable places you can lose your soul is at the heights of power in this world. That's exactly what Jesus is saying. Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? In other words, Jesus is saying, take up my cross 
This is exactly what he says. Whoever loses their life for me will find it. We counter, Jesus counters this autopilot that Peter is on. He's navigating by the expedient. He's navigating by self-interest. And Jesus totally upends this. Remember the Sermon on the Mount? Broad is the road that leads to destruction. Take the narrow way. Because everyone around Peter has the same idea in mind as Peter. This is how Jesus will be successful. Jesus says that our assumptions about world management are way off. And that following him is the way out of the confusion. For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what they have done. Oh, that's dramatic. That's interruptive. That's unexpected. Now, this is a tough thing for Protestants to sort of get our minds around because we are the people who believe that it's not by works that we are saved, but through faith. And this might sound like works righteousness because if you go through the New Testament, every description of Judgment Day is based on what we have done. Jesus doesn't say, I'm going to examine your thoughts at the end of history, and if you have the right thoughts, you can get a pass. Nope. There's this judgment upon what we have done. But the consistent message is that faith begets actions. Actions reveal the faith in our hearts, even if our actions don't qualify us for that grace. Truly, I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Now, the Son of Man figure is clearly from Daniel 7. This is the term Jesus uses again and again to refer to himself. And in Daniel 7, you'll discover that the Son of Man is a ruler who is given an eternal kingdom as the Ancients of Days puts down the beasts, these imperial beasts that plague the world. That's Daniel 7. Now, it's really interesting that it wasn't until about two or three hundred years ago that anybody had any trouble with this verse. We are thinking in a particular way when we read this verse that it's very, very new. Because lots of questions emerge. Uh, what do you mean, Jesus, by coming, the coming of the kingdom? Well, it's come in Christ, yes. It's come in his ministry, yes. It's coming through history, yes. Is it here now? Is it to come? Yes and yes. So what about their death? About a week later, after six days, Jesus took him, took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. So in other words, Peter, who's got this script in mind, James and John, whose mother took Jesus aside and said, um, you know, when you march into Jerusalem and when you sit enthroned in the temple and when everybody's going to make their alliance to you to get their political favors, can my boys be in the cabinet? Those two. 
all those three. And he takes them on to a high mountain. He said, wait a minute, this is Matthew. Another mountain. The Sermon on the Mount in Matthew. Now we're going up again to a high mountain and we're thinking about Moses and Sinai. And he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light. Then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah and they're talking with Jesus. Now, most of the time you hear sermons on deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me and Peter getting called out as Satan. And most of the time when you hear transfiguration, you don't put these two things together. But in all three of the Gospels that have the transfiguration, it follows very tightly with a time reference on calling out Peter as Satan. These two stories are connected. They shouldn't be just looked at separately. And the transfiguration is a story that Jesus shone like the light. Oh, okay. What does that mean? That's like a heavenly stuff kind of thing. We're very vague on that. Well, what is it connected with Peter's little agenda for Jesus and the agenda of the mother of James and John and her agenda for her boys with Jesus? How does this all work? And now suddenly we have Jesus shining like the sun and Moses and Elijah with him apparently, probably glowing too. We had Moses glowing, of course, when he came down from the mountain in Exodus and he put a veil on his face because number one, people didn't like seeing it. There's two reasons given. And number two, it began to fade and Moses was embarrassed by that. So there's a lot going on here. And it's a little hard to understand. And so we just listen to the story and we say, yeah, and we should say, yeah, what? What is this story about? Why is this story connected with the other story? And we might say, oh yeah, shining. But I tell you something, you all know how the sun is. If I were shining like the sun right now, none of you would be looking at me right here, right now. Why? Yes, that's right, you go blind. Even though the sun is 93 million miles away, if you step out and it's a clear day and you look up at that sun and you keep looking, you'll damage your eyes. And this light is a funny thing because in some ways it takes all your attention so that you can't see anything else. This is a strange story. Then Peter said to Jesus, Peter again, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I would put up three shelters. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Huh? And it's interesting that this isn't the only gospel that records Peter doing this. And in fact, the other gospels know Peter is confused. He doesn't know what to say. This is the first thing out of his mouth. And we've all had this experience of something happens, it catches us by guard, and we say something that doesn't make much sense. But 
There is some sense beneath this. I had a conversation this week with a very interesting guy who um, wrote a, basically published his, his PhD dissertation about the relationship of Maximus the Confessor, who was a 6th century church father, and Christology, and sort of a very complicated book about stuff that you probably would never want to read through. But I had a wonderful down-to-earth conversation with him about this. And we talked about the fact that, so he grew up in uh, Disciples of Christ, Christian churches in the middle of the country, Missouri, and this Restorationist movement. And there are all these movements in the 19th century in which the Christian form church is kind of related, because what everybody wants to know is, how can I sort of secure God? And, and it's just like Jim Croce's, if I could put time in a bottle, if I could sort of secure that, let's say, that romantic moment of falling in love, or Dan Fogelberg, how can we make love stay? Everybody wants to sort of take these moments in life which are absolutely completely engrossing and positive and stay right there. And I think that's beneath Peter's idea that, well, let's, let's put up shelters and let's all just stay here. You know, and, it's, and, and there's, there's things like this all over our lives. Some people say that, and there are chemical reasons for this. Your first hit of crack or heroin is the most amazing thing, and the addict spends the rest of his or her life trying to get that fix again. And, and, and maybe someone who had a wonderful experience with romantic love, they're always looking for a new partner. Why? Because they want that feeling again. They spend their whole life chasing that feeling. And Peter's like, wow, this, this, is, this is even better than what I had in mind when I took you aside, Jesus. And I thought, maybe we could, let's just stay here. While he was speaking, a bright cloud covered them. And a voice from the cloud said, this is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. Now it's a good thing that they remember this, because in all likelihood, all Peter would have left with is, Something like the crack addict or the romance addict. I thought, boy, you know, being a disciple was really great when we were on the mountain. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground terrified. And this you see all over the Bible. In our men's group this last week, we saw Abraham. The Lord appears before Abraham and he falls down on his ground and he's terrified. Same thing happens with the disciples. Same thing when angels show up. You will not see death until you see the Son of Man in glory. Well, here he is in glory. It's in the next few verses. Is that what that verse meant? But Jesus came and touched them. And this is so gentle. And so personal. And said, get up. Don't be afraid. 
And when they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. And at that point, likely he wasn't blindingly brilliant. Now, as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus instructed them, don't tell anyone what you have seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. What's so much fun about reading the Bible is that if you actually pause and think about what's in the book, you'll scratch your head plenty. Because first of all, Jesus has publicly been healing the sick and raising the dead. And in front of crowds of thousands of people. And so for the disciples to go and say, oh yeah, by the way, we went up on a mountain and Jesus shone like the sun. Would that have had a bigger difference? And exactly how much difference did this even make in Peter's life? Look at the second thing, until he's raised from the dead. Remember the Easter story? He's crucified on Friday. Saturday, he's in the tomb. Who shows up Sunday morning? Did even Jesus shining like the sun make a big enough impression on Peter that he would bother to get out of hiding and go to the grave early Sunday morning? No. Who's at the grave early Sunday morning? The women. What were they there to do? Finish the embalming. In other words, Jesus begins this whole thing telling the people, we're going to go to the Jerusalem, I'm going to be turned over to the hands of men, I'm going to be killed, and then I'm going to rise from the dead. He tells them this again and again and again, and none of them take it in enough to bother showing up at the tomb Easter Sunday morning. None of them. This is remarkable. Yet Jesus says, keep this to yourself for now until you see the Son of Man raised from the dead. And none of this will even be sufficient to keep Peter on the night that Jesus is betrayed and tried when the servant girl says, oh, aren't you one of those people we've seen with him in the temple? You see, all of our ideas are that, you know, if God would only come to me, Oh, how would you like him to come? Well, maybe in a dream, or maybe with an angel, or maybe something really dramatic, then suddenly I would live the Christian life. And the answer is, I doubt it. Because Peter saw him walk on water. Peter saw him raise the dead. Peter saw him heal people. Peter was up at the Mount of Transfiguration. Peter had every mountaintop experience you can imagine and when push came to shove what did Peter do? He folded. And when you look at that little phrase deny yourself, take up your cross and you understand that that's exactly about this little imagination in Peter's mind that he knows what's coming down the road it pertains completely. Because Peter, a week before, says, Lord, we'll never let this happen to you. Oh, Peter, what do you think's going to happen next week? I don't know. Do you have it in mind that maybe next week he's going to take you and James and John up to a mountain and he's going to shine like the sun and you're going to meet Elijah and Moses? I have no idea how we knew. Did they wear name tags? We have no idea. But 
Peter, do you know that even this is coming next week? No. It's the Dunning-Kruger effect that we all live in the midst of. We have no idea what's happening tomorrow, yet we have in our mind a little map of what God should do. So the disciples asked him, why did the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, to be sure, Elijah comes and will restore all things. And uh, by the way, didn't you just see Elijah up on the map? But I tell you, Elijah has already come and they did not recognize him, but have done to him everything they wished. In the same way, there's another son of man saying, in the same way, the son of man is going to suffer at their hands. And the disciples understood he was talking to them about John the Baptist. And again, this is strange. Oh, John the Baptist. Huh? Here Elijah sh does show, but John the Baptist is clearly identified as playing the role of Elijah. On the Mount of Transfiguration, we've seen a glimpse not of how Elijah was in Israel, but what Elijah was transformed into. Moses, remember, was a stammering failed revolutionary that God transformed after he was 80 years old in a call in the wilderness by a burning bush. Yeah, I'm thinking about my life going forward, and did you imagine that, Moses? Yeah, you were young and randy and thought, I'm going to save Israel by killing this Egyptian. How'd that plan work out, Moses? Peter... You're not going to go down to Jerusalem. I'm not going to let that happen. How's that going to go, Peter? And the clear thing is, all of us have in our mind this little plan about how life's going to go. Don't put a lot of stock in that. I mean, and those of us who are older than 50 should know by now, our plans don't work any way like we think they will. Why do we put stock in them? Moses tries to put off God's call at the burning bush at 80 years old. What else you got in the tank, Moses? You're 80. Do you know what God can do through you? Oh, and by the way, you're going to be tending not sheep, but people in the wilderness for 40 more years. Boy, there's a heck of a way to spend your retirement, huh? Elijah, up on Mount Carmel, prophets of Baal, Go ahead, pray to Baal, see what happens. Elijah, altar, sacrifice, humble prayer. Lord, show him. Whoosh! Prophets of Baal are slaughtered. Jezebel says, Psst, I'm going to kill you. He runs like a little kid. He runs to the mountain. The Lord feeds him, supports him. Finally gets his attention and says to Elijah, why are you here? Didn't I show you everything on the mountain? Didn't I show you I could bring fire from heaven to demonstrate my glory and my will? We don't learn from these things. Peter thought he had the right stuff to manage Christ. We are certainly not better than these are spiritual betters. We imagine we can evaluate the world because we're all subject to this Dunning-Kruger effect in a spiritual way. God's pursuit of us will not be put off quite so easily. 
Jesus literally calls Peter Satan. And Peter is going to be the rock upon which he builds his church. Peter's implicit narrative of deliverance was garbage. Jesus would have none of it. In fact, it was a temptation to Jesus. Jesus understood. Yeah, get more power. Reign from Jerusalem. Arrange armies. Play risk with the world. See the wilderness temptations. The path of glory passes through the cross. One of the best books on glory is C.S. Lewis's sermon that he gave in 1941 in one of the chapels at Oxford. Now, it's really important to know that this was in 1941. In fact, the sermon was given in November of 1941. Does anyone here know what happens in December of 1941? Pearl Harbor. Anyone know what Churchill was thinking about in November of 1941? England was all alone. Dunkirk was a disaster. They barely rescued their army from Europe. Britain's army was all over in Europe. They had to quick scooch it across the channel. The Nazis have all of Europe. Japan is raging, taking everybody's possessions in Asia. Churchill's sitting on this island, and everybody in Churchill's cabinet is saying, just negotiate a peace with the Germans, okay? The war is lost. And Churchill is thinking, gosh, how can we get the Americans in the war? And the Americans are all like, y'all over there in Europe, didn't we do this earlier in the century? And didn't all of our, all these young men die in your battlefields and for nothing? We don't want to have any part of it. December, a day that will live in infamy and the 20th century is rewritten. Yeah, the little ideas we have in our minds about what's going to happen tomorrow. C.S. Lewis preaches a sermon on glory. You can find it online. It's all over the place. By ceasing for a moment to consider my own wants, I've begun to learn better what I really needed, Lewis says. By stopping for a moment to think about my whole little agenda, something opens up to me. There is a luminosity in the beauty of nature. And so when I ask someone, oh, you think you could do better in the world? Could you have really thought of the Canadian Rockies? And the detail and majesty that they are. And even that is just a tiny little bit Probably most of us in this room haven't even gone up there. It's glorious. It's magical. It's dangerous. I mean, yeah, they've got grizzlies. It's amazing. And it'll kill you. There's a luminosity in the beauty of nature. Something is shining through nature. It's not nature itself. We have similar glory in a lot of way. We're nature's sibling. We're not children of nature. Nature is our sister, not our mother. Biblical symbolism about light is that something so powerful grabs our attention and drowns out all other things that can be seen. That's the light of the sun. 
And if we have the sun standing on this stage, and even in tiny form, none of us would see anything but it. Lewis goes on. We've been mere spectators. Beauty has smiled, but not to welcome us. Her face was turned in our direction, but did not see us. We have not been accepted, welcomed, or even taken into the dance. The Canadian Rockies were beautiful before any human being, whether they crossed the Bering Strait or the Atlantic Ocean, ever had a chance to gaze upon it. And in fact, even in the story you notice, Jesus is talking to Elijah and Moses, and he's not even paying attention to those disciples. Beauty is just out there. It doesn't see us. Any young man that finds a beautiful woman, what does he want? Does she see me? It is not the physical objects that I'm speaking of, but that indescribable something of which they become, for a moment, the messenger. And part of the bitterness which mixes with the sweetness of that message is due to the fact that it is so seldom seems to be a message intended for us, but rather something we have overheard. By bitterness, I mean pain, not resentment. We should hardly dare to ask that any notice be taken of ourselves, but we pine. The sense that in this universe we are treated as strangers, that's the big argument that the atheists give me. You know, the Canadian Rockies don't care if you die of hypothermia in those cold lakes. But you're still beautiful. What's going on? The sense that in this universe we are treated as strangers. The longing to be acknowledged, to meet with some response, to bridge some chasm that yawns between us and reality is part of our inconsolable secret. And surely from this point of view, the promise of glory in the sense described becomes highly relevant to our deep desire. For glory means good report with God, acceptance by God, response, acknowledgement, and welcome into the heart of things. The door on which we have been, the door on which we have been knocking all our life will open at last. The reason people go from all over the world just to walk in Yosemite Valley, they want to be there, they want to participate, but there's a longing there that we see the glory, we see the majesty, but if I could put time in a bottle, how can I make love stay? How can, and so we take pictures to try to trap it, but pictures don't do it. We do not want merely to see beauty though, God knows even that is bounty enough. We want something else which can hardly be put into words, to be united with the beauty we see, to pass into it, to receive it into ourselves, to bathe in it, and to become part of it. Let's put up shelters. Yeah, but even that's not gonna really get you to the inside. At present, we are on the other side, the outside of the world, the wrong side of the door. We discern the freshness and the purity of mourning, but they do not make us fresh and pure. Our clothes don't shine because we feel the regeneration. 
We cannot mingle with the splendors we see, but all the leaves of the New Testament are rustling with the rumor that it will not always be so. Someday, God willing, we shall get in. Didn't someone preach a sermon? I've been to the mountaintop. It's the same point. Someday, God willing, we shall all get in. When human souls have become as perfect in voluntary obedience as the inanimate creation is to its lifeless obedience, then they will, be, then they will put on its glory, or rather, that greater glory of which nature is only the first sketch. And in there, in beyond nature, we shall eat of the tree of life. At present, if we are reborn in Christ, the spirit in us lives directly on God. But the mind, and still more, the body receives life from him at a thousand removes, through our ancestors, through our food, through the elements, the faint far-off results of those energies which God's creative rapture implanted in matter when he made the worlds that we now call physical pleasure and even thus filtered, they too, they are too much for our present management. The junkie chasing the drug, the romantist chasing the romance. Oh, there's lots in the physical world that we hunger for, but we can't grab it. We can't put it in a bottle. You can keep taking heroin, but you'll never get back even to that first time. There's no God because if I were God, I would have created a better world. Really. We should lay down our little Dunning-Kruger effect. What would it be to taste at the fountainhead? That stream of which even the lower reaches prove so intoxicating. Not just living by a lake in the Canadian Rockies that looks like Gatorade, but being in communion with the source of all that beauty. Yet that, I believe, is what lies before us. The whole man is to drink joy from that fountain of joy. Let's pray. Lord, we really don't know a lot. And we walk around imagining we have some idea about the way the world should go, even though we can't manage our own lives. And you come to us and invite us into communion with the source of all beauty, goodness, and joy in this world. And we pay no attention. We can't even remember. The memory isn't even strong enough to keep us from sinning or denying or betraying. And so, Lord, it's all grace. It's all your grace that forgives, that is patient with us, that loves us even though we are faithless. Help us, Lord, to catch a glimpse and help us, Lord, to deny our little agendas and to take up your cross and follow you. Amen. Would you stand?